And today's talk title is called Good Work. So we're going to be talking about what good work is and how we can find that in our lives. And I thought I would start about talking about my experience with work. And, you know, most of us, I think, when we think of work, we think of our job, right? You know, and it's certainly more than our job. And I'm going to be focusing on that because I think that's where most of the sticky stuff tends to come up. And I started my first real job as a photo technician at a Walgreens in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yeah. And I did that because it was either that or fast food, and I did not want to work in fast food, that's for sure. Um, I had some friends who worked there. Actually, I had a friend who worked at a Dairy Queen, and let me tell you, he told me what goes into those dilly bars. Don't do it, it's a trap. So I worked there, and I worked there through my college career. Um, I was in college for five years, and I worked at that Walgreens for pretty much that entire time, part-time, you know, so I could pay my rent and have some extra money and, you know, the reasons that college students have part-time jobs. And eventually I graduated. I graduated with um, an English major, um, a degree in letters and science, and I had no idea what I was going to do. So I looked at that Walgreens, I'm like, well, I guess I can become that open third shift manager. And I became a third shift manager. You know, I talked myself into it. And um, it was was not the worst idea. It paid a living wage. At the time, I was able to pay my rent and my bills and all that good stuff, you know, the reasons that we commonly take jobs. And as time went on, though, I recognized that this was not going to be the job for me. Even though I really liked the idea of working seven days on and then having seven days off, which is how they did third shift management then, Um, I had like 10-hour days that I worked, I really started to loathe that job. I really got tired of being the person who every night was reorganizing our stock room and facing the store and making everything look really good, only to have it all torn down again the next day. I just, I could not get into a good relationship with that job. And, you know, it also helped that my boss was kind of a jerk, too. So um, when my dad offered me a position at his mortgage brokerage in Illinois, it was, it was kind of serendipitous. And so I went down and went to work for him um, trying to be a mortgage broker, which also was a fabulously bad idea for me, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> I am a terrible, terrible salesman. <laughs> And uh, I didn't realize how much of that job was sales. And also, we'll get into this in our, in our talk today, but I was going into that job for the wrong reasons. I thought I was going to become this fabulously wealthy, successful mortgage broker. I was doing it just for the money. And that was the wrong reason to do that. And some good things came out of it, too. You know, I was helping my dad out with IT, and that led me into my IT career, and we'll talk about that a little bit, too. But at the end of the day, the way that I had been pursuing those jobs was not in alignment with my wholeness. And that's one of the core teachings of our Science of Mind teaching, the idea of wholeness, that we are already whole, perfect, and complete. And so I thought it would be fun for us to look at this concept of work through that lens of wholeness today. And when I started to do that for myself, I started to think, well, there's some questions that we have to ask ourselves. And this is a good question for you to write down in your journals, by the way. The first question, why do we work? It's a very simple question. It's also a question that I hadn't asked myself. 
for a long time. I think it's a question that we in our, our society, we don't always ask. But when I ask that question, I also start to ask myself, well, then what is work? Maybe we need to define that. And I started to you know, do a little internet research, as we are, we are known to do when we're looking at those things, and found that work at its core is really just a relationship between cause and effect. Ah, that sounds a lot like what we teach in Science of Mind, isn't it? Hmm. So digging a little bit deeper, I came across um, a South African anthropologist named James Sussman who defines work as purposefully, and he emphasizes that word purposefully, expending energy or effort on a task to achieve a goal or an end. And so when I started to unpack that for myself, I brought it back to a spiritual way of looking at it. And I thought, well, really, that's just the means. The work is the means by which we sculpt abundance into specific forms. You know, it could be physically like somebody sculpted this beautiful podium here. Somebody put this flower arrangement together. Or perhaps it's a little bit less tangible. Perhaps I'm a therapist and I am helping to sculpt the consciousness of those who come to me for help. We're taking that abundance, we're taking our world and we're sculpting it into something beautiful. And so when I look at work through that lens, I find myself asking another question and that becomes what is the goal that I wish to achieve from my work? What do I wanna get out of it? And I think in our world, when you think of our jobs, for example, that there's a lot of reasons why we do what we do. Oftentimes, we're taught that the number one reason that we should be going into work is to make money, and we'll talk about that a little bit more because I don't think that should be the only reason. And that's because our science of mind teaching shows us that there's a bigger view of work that we can take when we look at it through that lens of wholeness. When I do that, I see that just getting paid is only part of the story. I don't want to discount that, but I realized this when I started to find my way into my IT career. As I was getting jobs with more and more responsibility and getting paid more and more, I was like, well, this is nice when I'm getting paid more, but I'm, I'm noticing that there's something inside of me that's looking for something bigger than just that. And so I found my way into Chicago Public Schools. And what's really cool about that, um, not only did that job come about through a spiritual mind treatment, through an affirmative prayer that I did when I was stuck in traffic <laughs> on a two-hour commute home, which is a great place to pray, by the way. I found a job where not only was I being paid well, but also I was doing good work. For the first time in my life, I recognized that, wow, the work that I am doing now, I am of service to my teachers and my students. I'm helping their lives be a little bit easier. I'm helping students to learn more easily. I'm helping teachers to support them a little bit more easily. And so that felt good, and I recognized that there was so much more to this act of work than simply just getting a paycheck. And that led me to another realization, that when I look through, or when I look at work through the lens of wholeness, I recognize that work 
oftentimes is an agreement that we make with ourselves, that we make with our lives, that we make with those around us. And that agreement is that we are agreeing when we go into any kind of work to be a cause in service to a specific effect that we desire in the world. Now, where do we get tripped up? Because I think it's important for us to really recognize where we can get tripped up with this and perhaps where we have historically gotten tripped up with this. So personally and socially, I think we get tripped up with some of the agreements that we have made over the years, perhaps with ourselves, perhaps because we've accepted society's agreements. And for the longest time, and I think it's still happening today, our society has been telling us that the primary reason we do work is to enrich ourselves. Whether we are working for ourselves, working for somebody else, employing people, creating a business, the mantra that greed is good has been kind of ingrained in our Western society, hasn't it? If we turn on the news today, I would bet you good money that you're going to hear about the economy. And we obsess about the economy. We've almost made our religion the economy, haven't we? What's the stock market doing? What's the economy doing? You know, oh, the economy is down. Oh, the sky is falling, yada, yada, yada. And when I hear that, I think, well, what is the economy actually in service of? Is it serving us? It's a good question to ponder because ultimately the economy is just a reflection of the work that we do, isn't it? Now I want to be clear, there is a partial truth in the idea that we would be compensated for the work that we do. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you know, money is just a representation of the energy that we expend and we exchange with each other. We, as, as, you know, as human beings, we recognize pretty early on that it's a lot easier for us to have something that represents us rather than, you know, if I want to buy a Super Nintendo, you know, handing somebody a crate full of chickens, <laughs> you know, or like trading a goat for a cow. It's easier for us to do business with each other through the power of money. Money itself is not good or bad. It's just a way of exchanging that energy that we share with each other. Where we get tripped up is when money becomes the only reason that we do our work. That's certainly where I was getting tripped up. And the reason for that is because it's not in alignment with wholeness. There's more to work than just the getting, right? that creates an imbalance in our lives if that's the only reason that we're doing our work. And I think it invites us to create covenants, agreements that are based in separation, that aren't based in wholeness or oneness. And to give you a very tangible example, because um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, is a big conversation right now in the uh, United States in particular is this whole idea of income inequality. And we're seeing this increasing amount of income inequality between those who are fabulously wealthy and basically the rest of us. And we've been seeing that effect, the effect of this covenant greed is good, the effect of this idea that when we do business, there have to be winners and losers. We've been seeing this since the 1980s. Did you know, 
I didn't know this, but I looked it up and I was a little surprised that since pretty much since World War II around 1945 until 1980, when we looked at the wages on average that an individual was making, that tracked pretty much in line with what our country's gross domestic product is. Now, the GDP, if you don't know what that is, is simply a reflection of what we're producing. It's like this giant number in the trillions of dollars that is an easy way to represent what it is that we're making as a country, as a whole. So from 1945 until 1980, the wages kind of tracked with that, which makes sense, right? If we're making more stuff, it would make sense that we're getting the benefits from that. Then the 1980s hit. And that mantra, greed is good, showed up. The whole idea that there have to be winners and losers in business showed up. And things started to shift a little bit. Today, when we look at the numbers, our gross domestic product, that which we're producing per person, is almost four times as much as it was when we started this in 1980. But the wages haven't tracked with it. That's where it's a little like, I wonder what consciousness was going on there. Perhaps we got into the wrong reasons for going into work. Because that GDP skyrocketed, but when we adjust our wages per person according to inflation, well, we're actually making about the same as we were in the 1980s. Hmm. Yes, the plot thickens. I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much incoming inequality now in the world because this whole idea that there have to be winners and losers, well, if we adopt that for ourselves, we either become a winner or we become a loser. And I want to talk about how we can all be winners, how we can all be served and thrived by the work, like thrive with the work that we do. I can tell you the times when I adopted greed is good as my own mantra, and there were some times I'm not super proud of them, I didn't do so hot. I actually found my way into a lot of debt. I found that I was doing work for all of the wrong reasons, and I absolutely was not happy. And I had to think about what is it that I can do differently, and what is it that we can do differently to have a more spiritual relationship with the work that we do. In fact, how can we create a more sacred covenant with our work. And for me, that sacred covenant means that we would, yes, get the financial benefits of the work that we do so that we can survive and we can thrive, but we can also avoid the trappings of this old idea that there have to be winners and losers and that we have to only enrich ourselves at the expense of others. So how do we do that? Well, Dr. Edward actually gave us the answer last week. (laughs) Last week, he reminded us that we live in a universe that reflects back to us what we hold in our consciousness, what we recognize about the truth of life and ourselves. We live in a reciprocal universe. So what that means is that when we enter into any kind of work, we have an opportunity to look for the good within us. And then through our work, we share that good with the world. I've got a fabulous story here. I'm, I'm so th- 
I, this is like this story is so synchronistic because it, it just happened last week. I was um, sitting with my therapist and I was kind of having a little bit of a down day and having a down week and we're talking about that with my therapist. And um, this context will make sense, by the way, but my therapist and I, we do therapy in the woods. Um, and he started doing that because of the pandemic. It was hard for him to see clients in his office. And so he's like, well, let's do it in the woods. And it actually turns out to be a really great setting for therapy, especially when you're a hiker like me. So I am sitting towards the end of my therapy session with my therapist, and um, he's having me meditate on getting in touch with my feelings in my body. And your body is a really good way to get in touch with your feelings, by the way. So I was pointing my awareness like a flashlight down right here, below my rib cage, right above my stomach, right around the center of my physical being. And as I'm focusing on that area of myself and just sort of listening, I start to get a feeling. I'm like, ooh, what's that feeling? Not quite sure what it is, but I'm going to sit with it for a bit. And the feeling grows and grows, and pretty soon I'm like, wow, I'm feeling joy. I wasn't expecting that. And so here's this joy that's just upwelling out of me for absolutely no reason. We're getting towards the end of this meditation, and my therapist, like a good therapist, is just kind of letting me chill with that wonderful feeling. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I hear this meow, 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 meow. And I, you know, jostled out of my meditation. I open my eyes, and here's this little black tuxedo kitty right next to my chair, looking right up at me, meowing at me, kind of like pawing at me, like, would you please love me? And here I'm thinking, oh my God, my joy attracted to me, this beautiful, amazing little kitty. You know, I pet it a little bit and it's purring and it's happy. And so we end our session and um, it gets even better. So I walk back up out the trail to go back to my car and there's that little tuxedo kitty. And little Tuxedo Kitty comes running back to me. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but it runs back to me. And um, I start petting it some more, and I'm kneeling down to pet it. And all of a sudden, it jumps on my shoulders. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, okay, universe, thank you. Thank you for reminding me that the joy starts with me, because I don't think any of that would have happened, and I certainly would have been open to it if I hadn't found that joy within me first. And so when we bring that into the context of work, that tells me that if I'm an employee, I have to remember that I should never discount the sacred nature of that which I do. When I find my own inner good and I share that good, that tells me too that I have a right to make a living wage with the work that I do. I have a right to not overwork myself with the work that I do. It's kind of like that um, example of the, you know, the airplane oxygen mask, right? And if you're going on an airplane, they tell you, put your mask on first because you're not going to be of service to anybody else if you pass out before you can help them. You know, and that's sort of the personal side of the work that we do. We have to recognize that if we are destroying ourselves in the work that we do, we're actually not being of service. And the research shows us that too. Um, there's so much cool research that's happening now that tells us that we shouldn't be efforting with our work as much as we are. And the reason for that is a lot of the science and studies right now are showing that once you go over about 50 hours of work 
in your job or whatever it is, the work that you're doing, our productivity goes like this, and then it goes, pew, almost to the point where it would have made more sense for us to not do that work because we've overworked ourselves and now we're making mistakes. I mean, think if, you're, if you have to go to the ER, for example, and have surgery. I want to have the ER surgeon who just came off of a two-week vacation in Bali and is just absolutely refreshed and is so tuned in with the work that they're going to do on me. I do not want the surgeon who has been working for 72 hours straight and is just falling apart because they're overworked, because they're going to make mistakes, right? And so then I look at the other side of the work here when we're looking at it in the context of jobs and business and things like that. If I'm an employer, my invitation when I look at work through the lens of wholeness, through my own wholeness and seeing how that wholeness plays out in my business, well, I first have to recognize I'm employing people because I know I can't do all the work myself. It's not possible, you know? There's no way that Elon Musk is going to make all of those Tesla cars all by himself. <laughs> Just not possible. So we enter into a sacred covenant with those we employ. And that means that our collective work has an opportunity to be a means for all of us to thrive. Not just the owner of the business, not just the per, you know, few shareholders or whatever who are getting all of the financial benefits, but everyone that's actually something that we see at Oliver's, right? For everybody who's here in person, Oliver's is an employee-owned business. And I think a lot of us shop there because we see how much better they do it there than some other grocery stores. And I bet that's because they're employee-owned, because they all have a stake in thriving together. The sacred covenant that we make with our work becomes so easy when we're able to tune into that inner experience of joy and love and wholeness, that spirit that is living its life as and through us. But we have to do that first. That comes first. The consciousness comes first and then the effect. And what's cool is that because we live in this reciprocal universe, our wholeness, when we do tap into it, especially when we're doing work through it, it draws to us more wholeness, more experiences of wholeness, more feelings of wholeness. Just as my joy drew me a little tuxedo cat. <laughs> I think it invites us to look at the bigger picture around the work that we do in the world and see how is our work of service, not just to ourselves, but to our larger society. And that deepens it. That makes it sacred. And the best part of this that I've, I've experienced is that as workers, because we're all workers, whether we are in a job, whether we're retired, and maybe our work is just gardening, <laughs> as workers, when we tap into that spirit within us, even the work that might give us heartburn is so much easier. Because we know sometimes there's work that we just have to do, you know? We need people to come and pick up our garbage. We need to do our dishes. We need to clean our toilets. All of those things are things that we have to happen, and I don't know many people who are super thrilled about doing them. But when spirit is called in to do that work with us, 
then the burden of those things that we don't like doing gets shared. We begin to see that there is a sacredness to all of the work that we do because that spirit within us truly loves everything, even doing the dishes and cleaning toilets. And that helps us to make a new sacred covenant around our work in a way that removes any experience of suffering while also affirming our good. And so I'm going to conclude today by saying that unless somebody creates some cheap, smart robots, maybe it'll be Elon Musk, I don't know, I really doubt that us humans are going to stop doing work anytime soon. Work is a part of the human experience. It's part of our lives. But what our science of mind teaching gives us is a way to approach it that allows us to become more empowered in the work that we do, to allow spirit to be the power that drives the work that we do. And that helps us to create new agreements around the work that we do. It lets us create win-win scenarios where we all benefit from the work and not just a few. By bringing in the power of spirit and its wholeness, we are able to reframe the work that we do in a way that's so different from the way that it has been portrayed in our society as simply a means for us to get rich and turn it into something that's sacred and beautiful something that is truly an expression of the divine living its life as and through us. And so I'm going to invite you as I go into my prayer here to tune into that same experience that I had with my tuxedo kitty. So if it feels comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes and um, maybe put your hand right below your ribcage and above your stomach so that you can really get tuned into that physical part. That's the center of your physical being. And I invite you to really get in touch with the consciousness that resides there. Simply feel the eternal nature of who and what you are. The joy, the love, the wholeness. And sit with it as we pray. Here and now, in this experience of wholeness, I recognize that one intelligence, that one mind, that one power, that one infinite, unconditional love that is the creative source of truly everything. I know that it is here now just as it is everywhere. And I know that it is good. And I know that the work that it does as and through us is good. And so I know I am one just as we are one. We are all expressions of that divine, perfect, unconditional love here now in human form. Each and every one of us is an expression of that divine work in this world. Whatever it is we are doing, I know that we are absolutely blessed. We are blessed by this divine Holy Spirit working through us and as us to bring its good, to share its good with the world. And so I know that we are absolutely filled to the brim with that unconditional love, with that perfect joy, with that feeling of wholeness and goodness. And I stoke the flames of that goodness and allow it to expand and grow within us as each of us is tuning in to that divine one that is expressing and living its life as us in this world. 
And so I am grateful for this. I am grateful for the fulfillment of this prayer and for all of this good that is occurring here and now in this room and in this world. This good that is a reflection of our beautiful work. I am grateful and I release this word into the action of the law that always reflects back to me what I give it. Together we say, and so it is.